If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast which brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Love conquers all, and that's a motto central to our culture and its Christian heritage. Yet Buddhists think of love as an obstacle to enlightenment. This week, our panel of renowned speakers tackle the problem with love. Is love for all an illusion? Might we be better to see love as a dangerous force that by its nature excludes others and gives rise to conflict? Is love then inherently exclusionary? Or is love for our closest, from our friends to our family, what really matters? Taking on these questions, we have consultant psychiatrist, filmmaker and writer, Dr. Mark Salter, English political philosopher and director of think tank Respublica, Philip Blonde, and Anglican bishop and academic, Helen Ann Hartley. To get the latest updates from Philosophy for Our Times, do check out our website at www.iai.tv slash podcast. And please do subscribe to the podcast to make sure you never miss an episode. Back now to Robert Roland Smith, who hosts this week's podcast. So I think this is what we're trying to get at, really, this conflict or potential conflict between the idea of loving one person at the expense of others, or whether a more kind of all-inclusive, comprehensive love is possible. So uh, I'm going to come to you, Mark, first, if that's okay. Um, Your opening thoughts on this this, this notion is love for all, a dangerous illusion. Is it possible to love one person as well as lots of people? What are the costs and benefits involved? Okay, well, first of all, we have got to start out by defining love, I think is the most important thing. And I probably the best way of putting it is this, anyone here who doesn't breathe? Well, that's kind of an obvious question, but is there anyone here who thinks of, lo- of, of breathing or oxygen as an appetite? Do we have an appetite for oxygen? If you ask about appetite for food, it's quite clear we know what we mean by that term. And I'd like to say we have an appetite for oxygen. The problem being that if we're deprived of it, we're dead within about three minutes. With food, it's dead within 60 days. With water, it's dead within three hours. And I would say that we have an appetite for love, which is no less fundamental. In other words, it's a biological thing. It keeps us alive, it keeps us ticking. Sure, Darwinians amongst us will tell us that it's good for reproduction. It helps to love the person you, excuse the word, shag which is another word for intercourse or reproduction, another fundamental biological process. But there's no doubt about the fact that love is essential. Problem is that love is not a noun. We're using the word noun already. It's a process, it's a force. But actually the fact of the matter is that love is a verb. A verb, it's something you do. 
When you turn something into a noun in our Western civilization, you get into a lot of trouble. The word community is a noun. As a psychiatrist in East London, that can either mean living in a U-insert cardboard box, or it can mean living in a well-staffed care home, or living with your loved ones. Community can mean different things depending upon the power of the noun. Similarly with depression. It's a thing that's treated with Prozac. No, it's not. It's treated with love. Community is built with love. Community is built with this biological force. It needs refining. Because it's a verb, it's something we do. It's an action. And like farting and breathing and suffocating or singing or dancing and walking or defecating and all the other things that it means in this gloopy mess of being a human being, we can get better at it. And if you work at it, if we devote our lives to it, then you don't have to have a one noun fits all model like so much of our world does because we can damn well do it for the one and the greater. I haven't got time to talk about attachment theory now. Hopefully we'll come on to that and I'd like to mention John Bowlby. But the important thing is that it's an equation where love equals one plus one equals greater than two. Good love means that the individual is synergistically attached to a person and is better for it, but remains an individual for all that. You don't merge into each other. That's crucial. So my answer to your question, very simply put, Robert, is I think, yes, one can perfectly coexist. Love for one can easily coexist with love for the all, as long as we do it skillfully. That's my point. OK, thanks, Mark. So love's more of a verb than a noun. We can work on it. And it's essential but not reducible to biology, I think is what you're saying. Yes. OK, brilliant. Thank you very much. Helen Ann, over to you. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Um, did anybody watch the Eurovision Song Contest? Anybody admit to that? <laughs> well, <laughs> I did. <laughs> uh, the Danish entry um, was a song called Love is Forever. And the next day I was preaching on a, a text from John's Gospel where Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you should love one another as I have loved you. So I think the idea of is love for all a dangerous ideal, yes it is, but perhaps in a classically Anglican way I might add a but to that. Because it does depend, as Mark said, on how you define love. And the foundation narrative that, that I would base that on is the collection of books that make up the Bible, which are many and varied, written by different authors over a vast amount of time and history, many different contexts, and containing different sorts of words for love. So I'd want to ask that question, what exactly do we mean by love? By far and away, the most common word for love in the New Testament is that word agape, which has to do with community rather than self. But the idea of love being a dangerous ideal really is, is summed up in this symbol that I, I wear around my neck, the cross. And a parable that Jesus told in the New Testament is the parable of the prodigal son. Maybe you've heard of it. It's kind of one of these stories that's pretty common uh, narrative. Two sons, one spends all the father's inheritance, goes away, has a lot of parties, etc. Um, the older son is a bit annoyed about this because the younger son basically squanders everything, comes back, is received with great celebrations, and the older son kind of goes, that's not fair. Well, the point of that story and the point of love, in a way, is to say it's not fair because it does involve huge vulnerability and risk and cost. And in the sense, you can't have an assertion of love without having that shadow side of risk and vulnerability and loss. So yes, love is, love for all is a dangerous ideal. 
Thank you, Helen. Yeah, so love for all is a dangerous ideal, and it makes us vulnerable, creates risk, but the Bible perhaps gives us some uh, clues as to how to manage that. Thank you very much. Over to you, Philip. What's your initial take on this? Um, <clears throat> as a philosopher and theologian, I always find one of the most <clears throat> successful ways to think is to be, imagine what the world would be like if the quality you were talking about didn't exist. It's, um, Adorno called it the power of the negative. So in almost anything you talk about, um, it's worth thinking, well, what if it didn't exist? Or what if the proxy for this word didn't exist? What would the world be like? What I think is interesting about love is, is we don't realize its absolute foundational importance. I'm going to talk about love ontologically, first of all. What ontology means is what is being. And um, there's a very interesting uh, point in Greek philosophy. The, fir the first interesting point about Greek philosophy is why did it end? Why did it stop? And the last great Greek philosopher was Plotinus. And Plotinus' philosophy was what's called a henology, hen being the Greek word for one, where out of the one sprung the many uh, and all things. And St. Augustine uh, said of Plotinus that he could never explain why the one was not satisfied with itself. Why did the universal create all these things that shared in the universal? And this, in the way, is the question to put to Plato and Aristotle. And Plato and Aristotle all agreed there were universals. So this is the great insight of, of Greek philosophy. There, there are things called universals. And in Plato's Sophist, Plato talks about how universals don't exist outside of their examples. So there isn't a world where there's just an archetype of a horse. There's a world in which there are thousands and thousands of horses and we know they're related, we know they possess hoarseness, but that hoarseness doesn't exist apart from its examples. Now, why this matters is because, and why Christian philosophy ultimately triumphed um, uh, over Greek philosophy, but triumphed not in the sense of subjugation, produced a new and, I think, true hybrid, is it can explain why there are many things that also share one thing. And that explanation is love. What love does at the most foundational level is explain why there are more things other than one thing. And it also explains, or attempts to explain, the relationship between things. So, an ont ont so what's really interesting is what, though, is true if you think, oh, that's nonsense. I don't believe in God. It's all a fiction. There are just many things. Well, what's interesting in life and in philosophy is, is you can't have a vacuum. You have to have an alternate explanation. If you don't fundamentally believe in that philosophy of love, what do you believe in? And essentially, you're left with discrete, anonymous entities that have no interest other than their own interest. And all you're left is the realm of the arbitrary, the world is just chaos, and the actors within it just pursue their own power and interest. And if you have that world, all you will have is the pagan world of power. And if you look at pagan gods, all pagan gods are, are isolated, 
instruments that seek their own self-aggrandizement. And what you have with Judaism and Christianity is a competing cosmology of love. Now, that cosmology of love gives you, I suggest to you, in this audience, everything you believe in. You probably don't think that, but everything you believe that I'm sure doesn't reduce to self-interest and power only derives from Jewish and Greek, sorry, Jewish, Greek, Christian cosmology and a philosophy of love. And you might be secular and you might be on the left and you, you know, you might be in momentum or you might be on the right and you might be this, that or the other. But none of your philosophies work without that. None of your belief in human rights because they don't tell you what's right. Nothing works without love and no idealism works without love Thank and no politics works without love. It is first philosophy. Thank you very much. Quite abstract. Um, so we have three different points of view there. I'm going to now try and sort of press the panel a bit on this specific question about whether love, despite our perhaps our fantasies about it, can actually be a force that divides us as well as providing this sort of universal substrate or bond for us. And of course, you know, in the times we live at the moment, it's very easy to think of people who love very specific things or are attached to very specific things, whether it's a political party like uh, the Labour Party or a movement within it like Momentum or the various nationalisms and populisms around the world or the tribes we're aware of, the uh, tribes online or the uh, terrorist groups we might think of. There is clearly quite a high degree of adherence, if not love, among human beings for certain uh, belonging groups, let's say. But at what risk does that come? So in other words, is it okay to love your country one might think of Donald Trump, at the expense of other countries? Is it okay to love your own community or religion at the expense of other religions or communities? So that's, the, that's what I want to come into uh, now. And I'm going to actually turn to you first, Helen Ann, on this, because you're talking about this idea of, uh, I think, a sort of fairly inclusive uh, love. But I, I just wonder if there are any limits on that. Is there any, should we draw the line? Is it okay to love somebody who's committed a terrible crime or who perpetrates a terrorist ideology or is uh, fundamentally anathema or inimical to our beliefs? Thank you. <laughs> well, I think from a Christian perspective, um, you know, love is, when I'm talking about love, I'm talking about God. And in a sense, there's a lot about that that you might think is quite absurd. Because yes, there are checks and balances and rules and regulations, etc. In the Old Testament, that's quite clear. Um, what is the first and greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. Um, and then love your neighbour as yourself. So in a sense, the way love is presented, it, it is presented in relationship, which means there are obligations, there are... Um, there's a level of morality and an ethical stance around that. So it does, it does make a difference how, but the motivating factor is you love somebody because you see in them something that is inherently good. And even if that is really, really difficult, in a sense, because you love, you are talking about God. And we don't have all the, I certainly don't have all the answers. And that's why I think one of the worst things Christians can do is to make a bold statement and then back off and say, well, it's nothing really to do with me, because it is. We're all involved in the struggle and the wrestling about what that means. Most of the, most of the food banks in this country are run by faith-based organisations. 
Um, that's, it's a terrible thing that we have food banks. But on the other hand, these are people who are motivated fundamentally by a desire to reach out to their neighbour and show love and compassion. Thank you, Ellen-Ann. It makes me think that in a certain sense, there's a kind of paradox at the heart of this, which it's easy to love what's lovable. Yeah. It's only when you're asked to love the unlovable that yeah. love is tested and sort of uh, challenged to be love per yeah. se. Yeah. Um, I'm going to come to you, Mark. Again, just sort of trying to nail the specific question here. Does love divide us rather than unite us? because of the attachment, to use your word from earlier, that love tends to bring with it. So we, when we love somebody or something, tends to come with a form of mm. attachment, which is one of the reasons why Buddhists, for example, are a bit sceptical about it. So what about that? Does love divide us rather than unite us? Well, hopefully we'll come back to Buddhism in a minute, because I don't think they're that sceptical about it. They're sceptical about the entire of everything, but, uh, of which love is only one part. But um, coming back to later, perhaps, I mean, none of this conversation has involved anteaters or bacteria. It's all about humans. <laughs> and I've looked at microscopes and I've looked at anteaters and I've looked at a lot of non-human creatures and they seem to be pretty good at love in one form or another. And it seems to me that if God really is that interested in human beings, and I have some concerns about the idea of the idea that the universe has an agency in of its own right that's concerned with me at the level of individual, let alone loves me, I find that very hard to get my head around, given especially the track record of Christianity and the other Judeo-Christian relation, philosophical systems over the last 2,000 years. Not exactly a lesson in love, what I can see. A misapplication, perhaps, of a fundamental guiding principle. It seems to me that it's much easier to apply Occam's razor to this. If you see things that have a reason to be attracted, look at the dance of the birds of paradise in any David Attenborough program, for example. That ain't love, I don't know what is. It's a very powerful motivating force that keeps the species ticking over. Now, when that species gets to the point where it's clever enough to actually have a name for the thing called me, my thinking, my feeling, bingo, you've got an introspection and an innately to give a name to a biological process. The problem is we think of biology as boiling it down. We can come up with dazzlingly sophisticated theologies and philosophies that, frankly, I find hard to understand because they don't correlate with the real world. Christianity to me and other religions to me correlate as much with selfishness and the Bible Belt of the United States of America as they do to kindness and love. I'm sure we'll come to this. But for me it seems that if love is practiced skillfully, I really honestly think it can be done properly and at the level of say the Buddhist concept of metta, which is a very interesting idea, in other words devoting your life to unconditional loving of all things Within that space, there is room for one-on-one -on -one attachments. And uh, I guess it's sort of development of this theme. Does the love of one lead to the hatred of another? In other words, again, on this theme of attachment, if you throw your lot in with the one group, can you do that without some at least implicit rejection of, or if not active uh, aggression towards what's been left out of that well, love or attachment? The, the point to, to make is that Human beings of necessity first love that which is near to them. And to, to paraphrase Burke, they then proceed to love humanity in general. And it's only God who can love all things equally, but human beings, because they're situated in time and place, first learn their love intimately, and out of that intimacy they grow to universal uh, love. And just to counter some of the ahistorical stuff, about 
Christianity, let me give you something that comes from love, and it's from St. Paul, where he says, um, you know, you are neither free man nor slave, Greek or Jew, man and women, you are all equal, which is obviously a terrible, terrible Christian teaching that we all should reject. Um, but that comes directly from love. And actually, the first insertion of radical equality in human history is in Judaism, where uh, under the doctrine of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, essentially Judaism says, unlike the code of the Babylonians, where if you kill a slave, you just give seven bags of grain, and it's okay that the eye of a slave is worth just as much as the eye of the slave owner. And so the point is, is none of these values, which unreflectively you, you think are, are innate, are innate. They're taught by, um, by culture. And the most radical emancipatory culture that we've had in human history is the account of universals and the account that they apply to everybody and that everybody is equal. And that comes only from a philosophy of universal love. It doesn't come from anywhere else. And, and, that, and what's interesting about, you, about love also is love is a universal and a particular at the same time. So you love people in their particularity. You don't want them to be what you project. You want them to be what they are. So the attitude of love, if you have children, as you'll all know, you can't make them what you want to be. Um, you have to love them as they form and as they are. And love carries with it an ought. <coughs> which is the ought for how we ought to relate to the other object. And of course, again, uh, it, this is obviously, people don't necessarily know Christian teaching, but Christian teaching teaches about cosmology and love as the basis of all biology and all animate and inanimate life. And actually, if you look at the anthropological constant, it looks very much as if this universe was particularly created for this form of life to such an extent that not even physicists now think it's random. So they invent the multiverse. And even the multiverse can't explain the particularity that we inhabit. So the real political and social question for us, I would argue, is you can't do without love, and you can't do without Christian formations of love. Because what Christian formations of love teach you is you can't limit love to love of country. You can't limit love to a circumscribed group because love is extensive. Christian love always produces a third. It produces something extra, produces something new. It can't be constrained. Can so ask? you can't have a secularized Philip, love. Just a second. We've got yeah. does, does this apply to the five billion people on the planet who don't believe in Christianity? Of course, it applies to the it, it applies to people heart. before there was Christianity and after there was there was Christianity. Christianity mm. is an argument about what is. Yep. It's not an argument that you have to. Uh, uh, accept it in order to be is. It's an objective truth claim about the nature yeah. of nature. Okay. Whether or not you it's, accept okay, it, thank you. it's thank a truth you. claim. Do you want to come back on that? Well, it seems to me you've reiterated exactly the same arguments you gave in your, in your opening statement. Mm -hmm. And if you want to apply Occam's razor and boil it down to the simplest things, everything you say, love is a universal guiding principle, a gift from God, because he loves all of us and gives the universal template by which we explain everything, you can take God out and put in physics. No, you or, or you can put in no, you the universe, or nature, no, or the you, rules you of physics. Really, really I don't see why God, as an agent, 
You can pull it over and it will, your argument still stands up perfectly with the gob bit removed. No, That's sleight of hand, it seems no, to no, me. No, okay, no. Philip, I'm yeah. going to put you on you're pause not, for a moment. Oh, okay, let's call it teapot. Help. You're not thinking I think we're not, philosophically, um, I'm afraid. We are... <laughs> Bring the bishop I in. I am <laughs> concerned. <laughs> Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to IAI.TV for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Uh, <laughs> I'm concerned that we are, my panel is squirming away from the question. No, no. <laughs> Never. The question, does love of one inevitably lead to hatred of another? Now, we know we all think love is a good thing on this panel, but I want to get them to think about what's bad about love. Right. Now, you talked, Helen and Anne, about the risks involved when you expand your kind of net, uh, net, uh, network, as it were, of whom you love, because it makes you vulnerable, it creates risk, and so on. So we've talked about some of the risks involved in love. But I do want to nail you all, or at least uh, some of you, on this question. What about the, the negative consequences of love and the possibility that it actually stimulates hatred of the other? That's the question. Well, it shouldn't, but of course it does, because there are plenty of examples um, throughout history of love of self and group, meaning that you dislike or at worst hate another group. I mean, that's, there are lots of examples of that. Um, so is that not love in that case? What hate? <laughs> is a love that excludes other people no, it's, well, not countable in my as love? Not in my understanding. Um, <laughs> So Martin Luther talked about the danger, or the sin, as he called it, of twisting in on oneself. Uh, an American theologian who I respect enormously, who's, who's no longer with us, um, Dan Hardy, who talked at Durham University, had this wonderful image of the Christian journey being a life um, untwisted into God. So I think rightly oriented, a life that's untwisted, and which does involve vulnerability, into God, who is love, should not lead to hate. But unfortunately, because human beings are human beings, we can turn in on ourselves, and then our agenda becomes not God-centered, but human-centered. And that can result in hatred. So hatred is a kind of aberrant form of the practice of love. Yes. Privation. Sorry, privation. Privation. Privation, okay. All right, I'm conscious of time. I'm gonna move us all. Did you want to quickly come in on that? No, I say once again, I'm yeah. sorry to be a boring biologist here, but everything you've said is understandable <coughs> in terms of the fundamental need to be attracted to and attached to something. It's probably no coincidence that when we're born, the distance between the baby's eye and the mother's eyes is eight inches, which is the fixed focus point at which the child is set. The woman's heart is thumping with oxytocin and the memory of the agony of childbirth has been conveniently erased. It only happened five minutes earlier. Something very strange is happening here. Now, sure, it's all part of God's great design. It could be just the law of the way that physics has bumped into each other with an unbelievable complexity over the last 4.7 billion years before, if you wish, God created us. But it seems to me that all these things can be explained independently. Now, when that attachment goes wrong early on, that leads to unskillful love practice in later life. 
We become attached not to the partner, but to the Reichstag. I want to marry that building. Yes, it happens. <laughs> Trust me, I know for a fact that when people are loved badly in early life, they go on to hate. The other downside I agree with, love is a beautiful thing. And when it's removed, as Freud says, it hurts like hell. Loving is risky, it's scary. All of these things explain that origin of hate, and God needn't have a look in. That, that's really re reductive nonsense. Um, <laughs> of, of, of the most extreme sort. If you have a purely scientific view of the, of the universe, you can't explain things like why I love flowers. I'm not in sexual relationship with flowers. I'm not trying to mate with them. I'm not in competition with them. The only... <coughs> account that a physics can give of human relations vis-a-vis -vis other relations, or the type of simplistic biological account we've just heard, is one of competition and a wish to dominate. It can't explain the, 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 the whole. That's not Occam's razor. That's just an error. That isn't even an explanation. Okay, thank you. I'm still feeling that we haven't quite got on top of this <laughs> subject. We've got a third question. I want to talk about the notion of romantic love, because when we talk about love, I mean, clearly, the, you know, the first love might be between a mother and a child. There might also be a love of God, which we've spoken about. But I, I think probably, uh, certainly in our culture, when we hear the word love, where we go to initially is to think about a sort of Romeo and Juliet type love or a Romeo and Romeo type love or a Juliet and Juliet type love. So romantic love is what I want to talk about. And this idea, I mean, I, I suppose most of us uh, in the room or any of us in the room who have ever been in love would probably have struggled to be in love with more than one person at a time. It's possible, I would imagine, to love more than one person at a time, but to be in love with one person, more than one person at a time, I imagine would be a bit of a struggle. So I want to focus the panel less on the, I suppose, theological and psychiatric arguments about this perhaps, move you slightly away from your specialisms, and just reflect a little bit on that, this state of being in love and whether there is a conception of being in love that we have that isn't exclusive, whether that's possible or not, or whether it's always some sort of throwback to this sort of <coughs> narcissistic state which Mark was speaking about when we're little babies and we have this beautiful, sort of reflective, indulgent relationship with the mother. I didn't say narcissistic, I said vulnerable. Okay, my word, narcissistic, your word, vulnerable. Mm. Big difference. <laughs> oh, very big difference. <laughs> right, okay. Um, well, look, I'm sorry to bring it back, but C.S. I mean, Lewis said to love at all is to be vulnerable. And I think it keeps coming back to this fact that even romantic love is about the giving way to an other. It's the fundamental giving way. So it's not about me. It's about me in relationship with an other. And there's inherent risk and vulnerability in that. But there's, there's nothing wrong with that self-giving. That's, that's, that's what the foundation of, I think, of romantic love is yeah. at a basic level. But in relation with that other, are we forgetting other people too much? Forgetting other people? Yeah. Well, there are <laughs> so in the New Testament, there are different Greek words for love. So you can have uh, eros, erotic love, but you can also have alongside that um, agape love. Um, which means, you know, it's more of a community-based love. So I think that there's a, there's a sort of imp slight impoverishment of, of language. I think we are constricted by that English word love, when actually when we look at the tradition, there are different ways of expressing that and understanding that uh, in Greek and Roman tradition, Judeo-Christian tradition, which can be helpful and does imply that you can have 
self-giving love of one other, but you can still love a community of which you are a part. Okay. Let me put it in slightly more pop terms. I mean, you've probably all known people in your life, friends of yours, who've fallen in love with somebody else and suddenly they go off the radar. <coughs> Right? You might have experienced that. You've got friends, they fall in love with somebody and suddenly they're not available anymore. They just want to hang out with their new partner. And it's a bit annoying. <laughs> <laughs> or you may have had a couple invited over to your house and they're all loved up and all they want to do is kind of canoodle on the sofa while you want to have a chat about something. To put it in very pop terms, Philip, if we think about love in that sort of instant, which is exclusive, almost, in some cases, slightly offensively exclusive. <laughs> what do we yeah. think? Is that okay? Do we just think, oh, you know, let them get on with it? And, it, you know, in a year's time when the relationship's gone sour, it'll all be fine. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, to talk about the concept of romantic love, if you think of people like Coleridge, Wode, uh, Wordsworth, the romantic poets, their romanticism was the romanticism of the whole. So all of their poetry, all of their work is about the whole and how a particular can stand for the whole. So that's how you'd read kind of Wordsworth's poetry, I think. That's how you'd read Coleridge. And I think romantic love, properly understood, isn't exclusive. It, what it is is that the person stands for the whole in some <laughs> illuminating fashion. So. So it's not a reduction into a type of sort of narcissism of the two. But, but real kind of love, you know, you know, if you've fallen in love and the other person opens up a world for you and it's kind of infinite, but you sort of have a concord on how you interpret and interrogate that. So and I think I, real, so real romantic love is where the particular stands also for the whole, okay. so, so it's already outside of itself. When Romeo falls in love with Juliet, he's falling in love with everybody. No, when Romeo's falling in love with Juliet, he's falling in love with something that also that doesn't just stand for itself. That's what I was trying to say. That doesn't just stand for itself. It somehow stands as an epitome of justice, of rightness, of how things should be. Because human beings, remember what I said earlier, human beings are, are, are if you want, are cursed with knowing the universal in the particular. So when you love a particular person, you also love that universal dimension of them. And I'd suggest to you that there is no genuine love without that aspect of the universal that extends. Can I suggest itself. something? Shakespeare was a genius, there's no doubt about that. When I see the rings of Saturn through a telescope, I feel a sense of awe. When I listen to any of the Hamlet's soliloquies, I feel the same sense of awe. I'm in the presence of something greater than me. Shakespeare was also a businessman. He wanted to sell plays that would sell. He did a rather good job, as it turns out. And he did so by picking stuff in his characters' lives that made the watcher think, hey, that's me. And who hasn't thrilled at the, the balcony speech at some point in their life? If they haven't yet to read it, I envy you. The point is that he was doing something, recognising something fundamental about the awful experience of being alive, of which being attached to a and other, whatever it is, is fundamental. It's thrilling. It's money-making. But is it exclusive? No, not at all. It's just one boiled down aspect. We've talked about the dangerous way we've stretched this word love. We've run a bulldozer over it this afternoon, this morning, it seems to me. But the fact of the matter is that we cannot talk about romantic love without realizing we're seeing this through the lens of post industrial, commodified, sub Judeo Christian civilization that sees love, romantic love, as a commodity. 
Well, like it or not, viewing it through a filter of Notting Hill and all those other slightly dodgy sources of portrayal of love, that I'm afraid so, it's the way our memories work, we distort meanings. Meanings really are far more fundamental than that. We must be very careful when we talk about romantic love as one specific aspect of love without recognizing its dangers. Okay. Well, in a second, I'm going to open it out to you guys. Did you want to have a last word on this question right now? Just, I mean, who's running the food banks? Yeah, there you go. Ponder that. I'm talking can, about the most... Where are the humanist food banks? I can answer banks? your question, who's running the food banks? Yeah. Wherever you go in the world, in India, you'll find that temples, where in, 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 in Islamic place, quarters, you will find people will go to mosques and shrines. The earliest hospitals were run as religious institutions. People will always, when in a state of suffering, illness, or dis-ease, with a hyphen in there deliberately, go to the presence of someone who's bigger and more powerful to get reassurance. It doesn't need to have God involved, but it just so happens the way we've evolved well, with our notions of agency. Does, yeah, that, that's the wrong way round. <laughs> so uh, food <laughs> banks have always been run by monasteries, mosques, muslims, pillars, yeah, yeah, pundits. You know, food, not, food banks are not run by those who are hungry. Hospitals are not run by those who are sick. Hospitals are run by those who are healthy because they think they have a duty to provide care for the others. If you look at Julian, the last pagan emperor of Rome called Julian the Pagan, he said, I hate these bloody Hebrews, by which he meant the Christians, because they bury the dead of those who are not their own. They care for people who are not their own. So this is the exact inversion of the truth. The truth is, that these ideas are brought into being by a specific culture that offers them to everyone. It's not the need that creates uh, the supply, it's the ideas that create the supply. Okay. In which case, I'm a wounded healer. <laughs> right, for now, would you please join with me in thanking them all for contributing. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Philosophy for Our Times. The podcast was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. It was hosted by me, Anna Carey, and our guests this week were Dr. Mark Salter, Philip Blonde, and Helen Ann Hartley. Please do make sure you subscribe to the podcast. And now you've listened to the episode, why not head over to iTunes and give us a rating or review to let us know what you thought of this week's episode. Do tell anyone you know that might be interested in the podcast, and of course, tune in next week for more debates and talks from the world-leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas.